On the night we first met, backstage at his comedy show in the spring of 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky looked more scared than I would see him for a while. It wasn't only stage fright, which often made him jittery before a performance. He looked half-mute with fear that night. His lip clenched in his teeth, his eyes fixed on the floor as he paced around in his tuxedo, oblivious to the noise and the people around him. His bid to become the president of Ukraine was about three months old at the time, and the premiere of his new variety show was set to begin in less than an hour. Zelensky would play the lead role, the ringmaster in his peculiar brand of vaudeville, and millions of people would watch the broadcast on television, his medium of choice. For the live event inside the Palace of Ukraine, the biggest concert hall in Kiev, the good seats sold for more than the average Ukrainian earns in a month, and the entrance was mobbed when I arrived. It wasn't only Kiev's high society waiting at the metal detectors to get inside. There were plenty of retirees, hipsters, and office workers, young couples on expensive dates, the full range of the middle class that had formed in Ukraine since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were all Zelensky's fans. Soon, they would become his voters. At the front of the crowd, one of his media advisors, Olha Rudenka, who would ride Zelensky's coattails into Parliament that summer, pulled me through the door and showed me the way to get backstage, where the performers were already in costume. A few looked familiar from their movies, though it was hard to recognize anyone among the mass of producers and backup dancers. The actors jostling near the entrance to the stage, the makeup artists and the lighting techs, the choir of girls with crimped hair and white dresses. The older members of the troupe knew not to bother the star before showtime. Give him a minute, Rodanka said when she saw me sidling up to Zelensky. I'll introduce you when it's over. He had a lot on his mind, much more than the night's performance. Earlier that day, someone had called in a bomb threat at the theater. The anonymous voice on the line said the building was rigged with explosives that would detonate in the middle of the show. It sounded like a hoax, and Zelensky told his troop not to panic. Most likely, he figured, it was an overzealous supporter of one of the other candidates in the presidential race trying to sabotage his big premiere. Even so, the law required the theater to take precautions, and a few police officers had come with a canine unit to sniff around the coat check and concession stands. They found nothing suspicious, but the cops still advised the theater to call off the show. That afternoon, Zelensky conferred with the venue's management, and they decided to carry on. They didn't even inform the concertgoers of the danger. More than 3,000 of them were in the hall by the time I got backstage, enough to start a stampede if Zelensky told them of the bomb threat. So he pretended everything was fine and allowed his audience to enjoy the act in ignorance. Even the performers were not all aware of the danger. Backstage during the show, they sat around on costume trunks between their sketches, eating takeout and raising toasts. A handful of them had been performing with Zelensky for decades, and this would be his last big show 
before the elections pulled him through the looking glass from satire into politics. They knew he might never return, and they wondered whether he would take them along to the office of the president. It's not that I want any job in particular, one of the comedians, Alexander Pikalov, said after pouring me a shot of whiskey in the plastic cup. But I think I'd make a pretty good defense minister. In his opening monologue, Zelensky leaned into the absurdity of his campaign, admitting that the jokes had not been easy for him to write. Lawyers had studied the script for violations of election law. There were limits to what he could say on television as the front-runner in the race. He could not openly agitate for his viewers to vote a certain way, though the legal lines were blurry when it came to the use of irony and humor. No campaigning, Zelensky told the audience with a wink and a laugh. It's just a concert, fair and square. Besides, you guys paid money for it. Before pausing for a breath to let the weirdness of it all sink in, he added, the world has never seen such a thing. The crowd found that hysterical. Comedian or candidate, it didn't matter. They seemed to love him in either role. When the show was over, Zelensky spent nearly an hour with his fans, taking photos with them and accepting their bouquets. He looked tired but happy, the anxiety having lifted from his features by the time one of his aides introduced us. His friends would later tell me about his addiction to the applause, the adulation. He had just received another dose of it, and it showed in the ease of his smile and the slope of his shoulders. Going on stage gives me two emotions, he once said of these moments. First comes the fear, and only when you overcome the fear, the pleasure kicks in. That's what always drew me back out there. For all his life, he had been chasing that feeling ever since he started doing comedy as a teenager. And it struck me as strange that he would now abandon everything he'd built. Politics might have its moments, but the response Zelensky was accustomed to getting from the crowds at his performances, from the soldiers he went to entertain at the front, from the journalists who invited him onto their morning shows to talk about his movies, none of that would follow him into the presidency. His life was about to get a lot less fun and a lot more complicated. He would no longer be a movie star, no matter how much he might try to resist the metamorphosis. The job would turn him sooner or later into the thing he claimed to despise, a politician. For a start, the media would question him, then turn on him. There would be gaffes and scandals, budgets to balance and weapons to procure. Worse of all, there'd be a war to fight, by the start of 2019, when Zelensky launched his campaign for the presidency, Ukraine had been at war with Russia for five years over control of its eastern regions. Dead soldiers came back in caskets from the fighting almost every week. More than 10,000 people had already been killed by the time Zelensky entered politics. Did he really want that job? Was he even vaguely ready for it? Even if he was. Why would he give up his life as an actor and drift further from the people he loved, his wife, his friends, the business they had built together? Was it the power he wanted? Was he bored? Zelensky had no clever or convincing answers to such questions 
when we went back to his dressing room to talk that night after the show. Standing there, he glanced at his own reflection in the Hollywood mirror. To his left, the costume rack was laden with pressed tuxedos that took up most of the space, leaving us nowhere to sit. So he leaned his weight on the makeup table and answered my question with a question. They're all snobs, or what? he said, referring to the leaders of the world. None of them are any fun. It sounded like a joke, but he insisted he was serious. He would only meet with the fun ones, and he would send professionals to deal with the rest. I don't want to change my life, he said. I don't want to become politically correct. That's not my thing. Maybe it was hubris, or maybe he was ignorant of what the job would take. But he seemed to believe that leadership would not require him to change. His life as a showman had taught him what he needed to play the role of president, and he was intent on remaining the person his experience had forged. If you lose yourself, he said, you'll sink into the swamp. It was getting late. He looked spent, and his friends were waiting for him at the after party. Before we said goodbye, I asked him about the bomb threat. What did he make of it? Well, there's the answer to your first question, he said, meaning the one about his motives in running for office. The political class in Kiev had devolved into a bunch of pranksters and hooligans, he said. They were on track to blow up the economy within a few years. The senseless war in eastern Ukraine was bleeding the country dry. He carried on for a while, with jokes and metaphors, about the need to save Ukraine from its current leaders, describing them as a threat to everything he had spent his life creating. If I didn't run for office, all of this might be gone soon, he said, waving at the mirror and the costume rack. Just like that, he said. Gone. That night, and in the months that followed, it never occurred to me that I might one day write a book about Zelensky. Now, it seems obvious that our meeting at the Palace of Ukraine opened the door for me to write this one. It was the moment when Zelensky's team first allowed me backstage and into his entourage. After he won the elections later that spring, I continued to cover his administration for time. I followed him as he struggled to govern, to manage relations with Donald Trump's White House, and to negotiate a lasting peace with Russia under Vladimir Putin. I followed him as his talks with Putin broke down and the Russians prepared a full-scale invasion, and I stayed as close as possible once that invasion began. Throughout that period of several years, when I would come home from a reporting trip to Kiev, people would often ask me, what's he like? My answers evolved over time, as did his character. On the campaign trail, he struck me as a naive charmer preparing to enter a world of cynics, oligarchs, and thugs who took him for an easy mark, and not without reason. By the time we met again in the presidential compound in the fall of 2019, he had absorbed some of the poison from that world and burned off a lot of his innocence. But the experience of power hadn't hardened him, at least not yet and not nearly enough to prepare him for confronting Putin face to face. The greatest changes in Zelensky, the ones that became a central focus of this book, 
took place in the first few months of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when he turned into a wartime president, unique to our age of instant information, stubborn, confident, vengeful, impolitic, brave to the point of recklessness, resistant to pressure, and unsparing towards those who stood in his way. He channeled the anger and resilience of his people and expressed it with clarity and purpose to the world, becoming a symbol of the kind of fortitude all leaders hope they can muster when called. But it was the showmanship he honed over more than 20 years as an actor on the stage and a producer in the movie business that made Zelensky so effective in fighting this war. A war that required Ukraine not only to hold the world's attention, but to win the sympathy of people and their governments across the globe. Technology gave him the means to do that job. In public, his friends and staffers said Zelensky always had the qualities to do it well. Privately, they would admit to feeling shocked by his new self. Most Ukrainians did not believe he had it in him. Neither did I. His success as a leader in the first hours of the invasion relied on the fact that courage is contagious. It spread through Ukraine's political ranks as everyone realized the president had stuck around. The other officials responsible for keeping the state together mostly fell in line behind him after that. Instead of running for their lives, many Ukrainians grabbed whatever weapons they could find and ran to defend their towns and cities against an invading force armed with tanks and fighter jets. How much credit does Zelensky deserve for that defense? He was informed at the start of the invasion that the Russians aimed to capture Kiev and unseat his government, and he gave orders to stop them by any means available. But the armed forces of Ukraine did not need his dispensation to defend the capital. The machinery of their resistance was already in motion, and Zelensky was not at the wheel. He had spent months downplaying the risk of a full-scale war, even as U.S. intelligence agencies warned that it was imminent. When it started, he gave the military brass the freedom to lead on the battlefield, while he focused on the dimension of the war where he could be most effective, keeping Ukraine in the headlines and persuading the world to help. These aims would drive him through the early months of the invasion, and they shaped the way he responded to my plan for writing this book. 